This is episode number 12 of the Full Dash Closure audiobook and podcast, available on Substack, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and, and most major podcast networks. I'm very pleased today to have two guests with me. One of them is uh, Heidelor, and you'll probably see Heidelor again. She's a colleague of mine uh, writing for R9 Media. She's a uh, photographer and also just published a very interesting personal story about her experience with, with uh, Stalker and the impact that that had on her life. Uh, so welcome, Heidelor. And then our, our featured guest for today is author Steve Paxson coming uh, to us from around the Oxford area in the UK. And uh, I'm gonna go to, to Tyler first. Tyler, give us uh, the, the one minute introduction of, of you and what you do. Well, I am a photographer, a writer, and occasionally working as a, uh, a nurse. Back to my son was born. I, uh, hello. Yeah, you're, you're breaking up on us, Heidelor. I got it. Got it. Yeah. Can you see me now? We can. We can. Uh, uh, well, I'm a writer and photographer and a nursing assistant, I should have said. Uh, part, part of the time I've hurt my back and my son takes up a lot of my time. But uh, contributing editor for R9 Media and the Intelligencer. Uh, and I can be found at I, at Heidi Lore 76 on Twitter. Great. Steve, welcome. Uh, you've obviously uh, released a, a new book, How Capitalism Ends. Uh, love the title and very interested in, in hearing from you today. Uh, give us give us a one or two minute introduction of, of who you are and what you do and and where this book fits into to your purpose and, and mission in your life. Okay, so um, I guess, I mean, this is the second book I've brought out in the last couple of years. Um, I did have a bit of an academic career a long time ago. Um, and the, the first book, I, I, I kind of resurrected um, my right in, interest in writing. So my first book that I brought, brought out on a kind of commercial rather than academic framework was uh, Unlearning Marks, which came out a couple of years ago. And really, that was kind of, that was my, that, or the, that was, that was something that grew out of my uh, doctoral thesis. Um, but I've been out of academia now for a long time. And then, and, and I kind of had a lot of other stuff I wanted to say, but I need, I kind of needed to get that out of my system, in a in a way. So um, I'm not in academia now, I work at various jobs, I tend if I can to work, um, white collar in the winter and blue collar in the summer um which is seems to be the right way around to do it and i uh i've written this book in the last couple of years how capitalism ends and really what it is is it's kind of yeah it's my understanding the subtitle of it is history ideology and progress and it, the, those are the things that interest me and i think those are the things that are important in terms of how we think about capitalism ending and what's going to come next we need to think about the history of capitalism and how history happens, how change happens, 
um, and also how, how kind of ideological issues surround that. So there's a lot of ideological arguments in that. And then the third section progress is really about where I think some ideas about where we might go. I'm not really very prescriptive, but just some general kind of thoughts on the, the general direction we need to be going in. Um, and I guess, I mean, one thing people have said at the, about the book is that it does stress continuity a bit. It talks about a transition to out of capitalism rather than a sudden kind of a, a crisis and a sudden move to something else. Um, it's still, um, I think, a, a it's kind of a radical book because it does talk about the end of capitalism. We're, we're not really interested in, in trying to make capitalism palatable. Um, it's going to go and we need to be thinking about how we, how best, you know, what best to replace it with. Yeah, uh, that's probably not a not a strange uh, philosophy or, or a thought process for listeners of this podcast at all, because it, we share much in common in in those aspects. My general take on it kind of kind of like you it's it's a nonpartisan look at it because you think partisan politics is really just part of the distraction of of our world now but i've i've looked at it for a number of years as an unstable system and i've told people it it, it it's not a matter of whether we want capitalism to last or whether we like capitalism or or even what those monolithic terms of capitalism and socialism uh, or communism mean because no governmental system is monolithic in in some uh, single term definition, but but just really the fact that it's an unstable system that we're in today in the empire, uh, your empire, and our empire, uh, interestingly enough, and and that because that system is unstable, it, it simply can't last. How do you feel about uh, you know? technology of, of the modern news cycle notwithstanding, just the general stability of the systems uh, over the last few years? Um, I, th I, I mean, you know, it, as you say, it's always unstable. There are always crises. There's always one coming around the corner. Even in periods of boom, we know there's a bust coming. And when there's a bust, we're looking forward to the next boom. But obviously, it's we know it's 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 cyclical and, you know, that's that's not going to end. That's, that's not something that... that um, you can you can't have capitalism without those cycles. Having said that, they you know capitalism is quite resilient, and those cycles don't bring down capitalism; they just change it. Capitalists often sort of you know the the, 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 um, the one one of the main things they do is they've worked out how to how to make loads more money out of, out of the, the boom and bust cycle. So you know they can they they can jump in after a bust and and buy up loads of assets while they're cheap and and kind of enrich themselves more than anybody else. So it kind of suits capitalists to have this unstable system. What they don't want is something that's so unstable that it can completely collapses. And I think, you know, in in some ways, we, we all can't afford capitalism to just collapse overnight. There are so many, all of the good things that happen in the world, all of the kind of the aid programs and the vaccination programs for smallpox and all of the, the you know, education that's going on in the third world. And, you know, thing, everything, you know, Developing countries really is a better term than the third world, isn't it? That's a bit out of date. But the, the, you know, the, all all of the all of the really good things are happening, and there are good things that are happening. You know, we are as a as a, as a you know humanity is capable of these really good humanitarian kind of delivering these really good humanitarian results. Um, 
obviously that's that's you know that's happening kind of despite capitalism rather than because of it but but the infrastructure of all those things is really tied up with the infrastructure of capitalism and if capitalism ends tomorrow all those things stop and you know all the supply chains and and you know where's where's your um where's your next meal coming from where's it you know i'm not saying we can't do without capitalism what we can't do is what we don't need is that like immediate crisis what happens okay capitalism ends today what do we do tomorrow how, do, how what you get up in the morning what's the first thing you do when there's no more anything that, we, that, that we've kind of become used to it, it's something that's emerged over a couple of hundred years and it's probably going to be a couple of hundred years in in sort of transitioning to something else and i think we're probably we're already in that transition and I, and I think one of the things i say in the book is kind of you have to sometimes there's a tendency to look at historical development as kind of stages that happen we have like a, a long stage of one economic structure and then there's a big sudden change and quite quickly we settle into a new one and then that that lasts for a long time and then there's another big sudden change but actually the transitional periods are kind of almost so long that you never quite get to full capital you know so so for example capitalism you know the, the ab absolute kind of ideal libertarian free market capitalism has never really existed because by the time the state stopped kind of having to hold the, the hands of the capitalists and help them develop we were also bringing in welfare states and and the nhs in this country and that kind of thing which are mitigations against capitalism they are you know that, that is a the nhs is a is, is a little bit of socialism in a capitalist system and right. uh, it's obviously it's under threat now but lots of there are lots of things like and, and the same with welfare systems and old age pensions capitalists don't want these things but they have to kind of have to you know we those are things that we've won and union rights are, that are obviously of, of different value in different kind of countries but we already have the signs of things that are that belong to the stage after capitalism. They, they might be small and, and they're not very powerful at the moment, but they're, they're there and those seeds are there. And in in places, we can sometimes get caught up with looking in, in um, the Anglosphere in, in Britain and America. But actually, I think the, the real moves forward are likely to come from other places. We, we did, the UK and the US did very well out of capitalism. And because of that, we've got this kind of cultural habit of looking back on this golden era and we want to get the glory days back and we want to make America great again or, you know, all that kind of crap. And actually, while we're busy trying to recreate the past glories, places like New Zealand or Denmark or Japan or whatever are experimenting with 30 hour weeks and universal basic income. And what if we just make all the trains free? And what if we give maternity and paternity leave of, of you know 400 days per parent every time you have a baby and what if we actually have a decent kind of structure um you know have, have some moves towards what 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 would be a decent socialist structure and you know there is the big push because you don't get i mean i i think capitalism to get rid of capitalism you have to get rid of private ownership of productive resources of the means of production and you know that is that means more than just some some nice welfare programs and universal healthcare and things. But those are moves in the right direction, and that's the you know. And we, we need to go much further than that. But what I'm trying to say, I guess, is those one those have already started, so we're already in that transition. And two, they're mainly not coming from the UK and the US. They're mainly coming from other places that are not obsessed with the, the, um, trying to harp on about past glories. Yeah, and so. So one of the 
it, something very analogous to your description. It made me think of, of theories of evolution in which, uh, you know, it's, it's like finding the missing link. When you're sure. in that process of evolution, you never really know where on that spectrum uh, you are. So if people are trying to, to label every missing link uh, of a day that goes by as one system or the other, it's a very foolhardy exercise because uh, it, there really is in the in the bigger scope of time no missing link. There's just constant yeah. transition, constant evolution. Uh, yeah, and there's no um, you, you never know where you are, but also you, you kind of tend to go about your daily day to day life assuming that you're at the end of that process, that we've now reached the pinnacle of evolution, and and that's it now. The stuff doesn't have to change anymore. Our imagination and that's the about capitalism that we've we've got there now. We don't need to to do anything else but obviously you know that's not going to be the case yeah and and one of the things i thought was very interesting about your book is is that it is imagining a life a life and a world beyond the typical definition of capitalism that's propagandized in in our global economy because that that propagandized version of capitalism i think I would certainly argue doesn't exist in any way, shape, or form. It's a it's an empire-sponsored propaganda version of what capitalism is. When, in reality, any given country has anything from public roads and public utilities to to public ownership to public bailouts to all different kinds of things. Yes. Heidelor, yeah. what what are your thoughts on? on where we are today and, and what Steve commented on. Well, uh, I'm in agreement here. Uh, capitalism, uh, we have never tried a true free market ever. We have never gone to that. And that would be considered, a, I don't know, there's uh, anarchist capitalists, you know? We've never attempted anything like that. And, uh, we never will. We never will, especially with the uh, technological advances we're, we're having. We're never going to have anything even resembling a free market, especially you look at the banks, you look at what's going on here, you, you, you know, and you can see it headed. It's 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 this cannot sustain itself anymore. Uh just read a little while ago, there was another major train derailment. Uh, drinking water is is now in danger. And I don't think people want to live like this anymore. Uh, so the things we've never attempted, we can't really go back to. So, you know, making America great, we can't, we can't do that because it was never really great in the first place. And we really need to fix these infrastructural problems, which I don't think, I don't think is possible right so, now. So you're talking about, you know, you're, you're definitely referring to the, to the negative externalities of capitalism, which are, are profound in that, that the corporate world and, and the government use all of the means of the public and private systems 
uh, as needed. And, and often they're free riders and often there are negative externalities that are very profound on the public. But for, for a corporation uh, who shields its, which shields its owners from responsibility personally, criminally and, and financially for the most part, uh, that's the cost of doing business. Steve, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think it's really interesting, actually, um, what Heidelor was saying about um, the fact that we never get this true capitalism because it's always kind of mitigated. The free market is never quite the free market. And what's interesting is, is for a while, when that happened, certainly in the UK in the post-war period, the, the interference with the free market was that we had good things. We had the NHS, we had comprehensive education, we had free university not just free university, but if you're a working class kid, you got paid to go to university, so you had money to live on as well. Um, you know, you had all of these these really good things. But actually, what's happened in you know since really the sort of Thatcher Reagan era is that all the mitigations on the free we've lost most of those, and all the mitigations on the on the free market, and we certainly haven't gained any new ones. All the mitigations on the free market are they're stopping the free market because they're kind of there's monopolies and cartels. And there's political um, money, you know, money going from from uh, corporations to politicians to stitch up certain decisions that get made and, and, and policy decisions. So the, the interferences with the free market are actually kind of they, they're helping the, the, you know, the bigger corporations. And actually that kind of that, well, it completely goes against the ideology they profess to believe in because they all talk about the free market. They all talk about, they don't want any regulation. They're up in arms whenever they might have to pay more tax to provide public roads that they benefit from or where they might get regulated so that their products don't blow people's heads off but accidentally. They're completely against all that kind of interference, but, but they're not against interference because they thrive on that because they keep bugging money to politicians to get them to interfere to stop any competition coming in so that they've signed up the market or to stop you know to 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 sort of um preserve international markets for them and that kind of thing and that's i think we see that in the in the fact that major corporations now really put their efforts toward monopolization of markets buying markets subsidizing markets dominating markets which in which is really one of those things that you don't want if you're a good capitalist you you would think that monopolies bad thing for capitalists monopolies are, are in the united states now a, a free-for-all you know whatever antitrust was intended to be it doesn't mean much yeah, doesn't yeah. mean much today here in here in the united states so yeah. you know, that's that's extremely troubling in the fact that not only are the markets not truly free markets, but with the with the advent of, of technology and AI, one could argue that that free markets don't even exist, that virtually any market from financial markets all the way down to the to the gig economy, which are little private markets on a gig app. These are all manipulated. And if they're manipulated, they're manipulated in somebody's favor. It's not a 50 50 coin yeah. flip. It's always going to be it's always going to be 5149 in terms of the house. And, and yeah. look, we've got lobbying in the United States. I'm not familiar with the, with 
with the UK's uh, process for paying off politicians, but ours is very effective. We've <laughs> just had actually, um, there's, a, there's a group in the UK called Led by Donkeys, and they just set up a sting where they got a load of Tory politicians. They set up a fake company and asked a load of Tory po politicians how much they would charge for basically consultancy, which which is just buying uh, buying your way into into politicians, really. And there's video of these guys. So they're releasing it drip by drip at the moment. But there's video of people like Matt Hancock, who was the health minister during COVID. Um, they're saying, you know, what what kind of a daily rate do you want? And he's like, oh, yeah, 10,000, 15,000. That's um, a good speaking. He's saying that he wants, yeah, I mean, he wants like 1,500 quid an hour. And at the same time, he's kind of doing interviews saying, well, doctors are asking for £14.95 an hour. We can't have that. That's the, That would be overpaid yeah. for somebody who's actually going to save your life to get, get £14.95 an hour. He wants 1500 an hour. And, you know, he's a, he's a and the only thing he's offering is a word in the right ear. He doesn't have any kind of skills or abilities or anything, but he's placed in the right place, which means that what they're buying is influence at Westminster. So that's, um, you know, it's, yeah, it's not, it's not quite as bad here in terms of the way money affects politics. Um, there are spending limits, for example, on election campaigns. Um, it's kind of toothless. The, in, during the Brexit referendum, the Leave campaign overspent, they spent more than they were supposed to legally spend. And they did it by setting up pressure groups that were not actually to, kind of not officially connected to the campaign. And people have traced the money back. And, I, you know, I think it's it's ongoing as to whether they've managed to prove that link or not. But I but I think they're, they're basically pretty close to, to proving that that they that money was was overspent. So um, and, you know, what, what can they do now? They can, you know, the Electoral Commission can find somebody 20 grand or something, but it's too late. The referendum was won. And and so that, so there's, it's kind of toothless in that way, but at least they have to. There are rules that they have to try and get around. There are they have to kind of go underground and, and set up kind of trains of of distance between themselves and these groups that they that they're paying. And there still has to be kind of a realistic limit that it would be too obvious if people were just throwing millions at electoral campaigns. Whereas in the states, I think that's just kind of standard, yeah. isn't it? It's just you know get your so check account. One of the key things here is that that uh, corporations in particular, but but wealthy citizens as well, support both sides. They're always they're always winning. They support they support both sides of, of any issue, and they also uh, have the advantage now of, of insider information that's now used uh, for personal wealth. I mean, in the United States. It has been released how much different politicians are are gaining in market returns that are, of course, far uh, above above what anybody in in the non oligarch sector. I was going to say private sector, but yeah. that's not true either. Any, anybody in the non oligarch sector uh, would get. What do you what do you think, Hylor? Uh It's it's exactly it, and. Uh, I do have a question for you, Steve. Uh, sure. Margaret Thatcher and let's say Boris Johnson, what is the fundamental difference now? Do you feel that things have gotten more right wing in the UK? 
Um, it, uh, okay, so I guess, I mean, you know, no one of, of our kind of political persuasion that was alive during the Thatcher years thought there would ever be, it would ever get worse. You know, that, yeah. that was kind of, we couldn't believe that it could be worse than that. And, you know, there are people who used to set your alarm an hour early so you could hate her for a bit longer every day. And it, she, she kind of, she dismantled all the good stuff that we that that Labour had built really over over those years. She she was the one that really started that. And she, but not only that, she moved the goalposts so far to the right that that Blair really was kind of. I think I don't know if it's Thatcher that said it, but some, someone has said that Blair was Thatcher's biggest legacy. Um, and and you can see that. And, and you know, I'm not entirely oblivious to the fact that Labour under. Um, Blair and then Brown did do some some good stuff that you know they, they spent tons of money on health they spent tons of money on education what they didn't do was protect all of those things from from being rolled back by a future Tory government and um, they also did some they you know they they did some um, they kind of stitched up their financing of the NHS which which started the privatization of it which we're now seeing is, is kind of uh, full-on but I think in terms of is it right wing, more right wing? I don't think it is, actually. I think Thatcher was probably more right wing. Um, oh. Her and Reagan were kind of very much kind of um, fans of Robert Nozick, who I talk a lot about in the book and uh, take a lot of his arguments yeah. apart. And I think with with Boris and, uh, and then Liz Truss and then um, Sunak, I think rather than being more right wing, what they are is... One, they're, more, they're less competent than Thatcher. Thatcher was ruthlessly efficient at being as evil as she was. These guys are less, they're not that, they're not ruthlessly efficient. But they're also, um, they're more corrupt and, and they have, in a kind of Trumpian way, they have no respect for, and this is what has shocked people so much, is they don't, they don't even, all the rules are on their side and they still don't play by them. You know, they they have everything. You know, and and you can see like kind of politicians of the Thatcher era, like era, like Ken Clark, who was um, he was never kind of a, a full on Thatcherite, but he did serve in her government as health minister, uh, and then he became chancellor under John Major. But he, people like that of that generation of Tories look at the current crop and just think they're crass and toothless and. They're just taking the piss and they're just, these guys are like, you know, get your hands out of the till for five minutes. You know, I think that, I think the Thatcher era, the Tories had a real ideological commitment to making the country, you know, they thought that, that they genuinely thought that was the, the, the best way to run a country, that that was a free, they were wrong. I disagree with everything they think about, but I think it was a genuine belief. And of course, it, it would be naive to think that there weren't people lining their pockets and there weren't little, you know, brown envelopes stuffed stuff with cash going around and there weren't dodgy deals happening in, in smoke-filled rooms. But this current crop just have taken it to another level. They, they, it's like they don't care. They get caught doing it and nothing happens. That's the thing, you know, under Thatcher, Leon Britton had to resign because he wrote a letter to some... Um, some of his supporters criticizing Michael Heseltine, who was the defense secretary. And then this letter became public and he had to resign. Um, you know, in the in the 60s, ministers used to resign over like the merest hint of a sex scandal or something. And now they can just be serially incompetent. Court outline Pretty Patel had to 
resign as foreign secretary for lying. And then the next thing you know, she's home secretary, which is a promotion. So you know, Boris Johnson has been fired from two jobs, three jobs, literally for lying. And now we're having like a, an ongoing inquest about whether or not he tells the truth. And, <laughs> you know, it's, it, it's not more right wing. It's just more kind of um, brazen. It's just more brazenly yeah. um, self-interested. I think the same can be said here. Sure. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And of but, course, when the when the Tories and the Republicans, the further they go, the more they drag Labour and the Democrats with them. So, so yeah. you, you get you, you know you get the same happening from the Labour Party. And the, like you you were saying, Jeff, about um, the the people that with the money are they're, they're backing both sides. They're bribing both sides. We've got the Tories trying to privatise the NHS. And Labour Party, the party that set it up, that should be trying to save it. We've got Keir Starmer as the party leader and West Streeting, the, the shadow health minister, both being funded by um, I, Armstrong. I can't remember his name, but he's a guy, he's an American, he's a very wealthy American investor who uh, most of his wealth comes from owning um, private health insurance companies. So why is right. he funding politicians in the UK? It's because he, there's a market there that that is rife for for right for for tapping well for for-profit health care in the united states is the reason that we don't have uh health care for everyone there's too much money being made by mm. by people that add no value except for uh skimming and and uh corporatizing the the products of of human medicine that's a that's a very bad fit in my opinion when it want to jump to another subject that uh, that I think isn't often addressed. And that's income inequality, but not just income inequality, but talking about it, as we as we look at the end of capitalism, the the CEO, one of the CEOs of McDonald's made about twenty million dollars in uh, twenty twenty one. I just read uh, this morning, and then there was, uh, CFO and about three other CEOs that each made about ten million dollars each, and and people in the United States have traditionally talked about minimum wage, saying, "Well, what do you want to pay a burger flipper?" Um, I'm going to argue that burger flippers are grossly underpaid relative to a, a twenty million dollar uh, or ten million dollar executive, and I think. When, when you look at this, not only are they getting some of their compensation from upping the market value, so they're incentivized to lie and manipulate the market, but they're also, you know, they're also, in terms of fiduciary responsibility, grossly overpaying themselves by any other standard, unless you're just part of the organized crime uh, oligarch mob. Uh, that, that's, you know, we can talk about shamelessness, but talk about income inequality uh, from two perspectives, minimum wage, which I've been writing a, a lot about, and and also from the aspect of, of executive compensation, because those are really two polar ends of, of an insane scale right now. What do you sure, think, yeah. Um, I think, you know, Robert Wright talks a lot about this, and um, in the UK, we've got um, it's a campaign called Max 12 to 1, um, which is arguing for to say that the person at the top of a company shouldn't be getting more than 12 times the person at the bottom of a company. 
and I and I think that um, you know that that sounds like a good start. It certainly you know maybe maybe four to one would be better, but actually twelve to one would be a good start. And and I think if you go back to kind of this, this is one of the things about the Make America Great crowd is that when they talk about when America was in their eyes great, the the ratio between workers pay and, and CEOs pay was vastly less than it is now it was kind of manageable maybe 20 30 times now it now it'll be four or five hundred times but that's not what they mean by making they don't want to go back to that that's the last thing they well that's you know Trump doesn't want that he wants all his mates to be raking it in so they can fund his political campaigning yeah. um I think you know the and I also could kind of think what do, when you've got 20 million what are you doing trying to get any more why what are you going to do with it you're not going to do anything with, with it are you which is kind of why so one there's like a human psychological story there about it's there is a mental illness that people have if these people were, were poor people collecting kind of newspapers or plastic bags we call this a mental illness and they're but they're rich people collecting money they don't need and it's, it's still hoarding they they have no they're collecting something that is literally of no value to them because they have more than they could possibly logically spend anyway. Um, so there's, there is a kind of a there's, a, there's something's happened in society to, you know, and I, it's not a new thing, I guess, but it seems to be more widespread than it was or more extreme than it, it was at, at, at some point in the not too distant past. But I think then there's also the, you know, well, what about people like you say, people on, on minimum wage? So we have a minimum wage here, which is kind of bearable, I think, um, once you're over 18, I think it's £9.41 at the moment, which, you know, you're going to struggle. Even two people sharing a flat, no kids, both working full time, that's not really enough. And you're probably going to be relying on state benefits, which means that that's the, the taxpayers then are collectively subsidising the employer to pay shit wages. So um, that's not right. to anyone's benefit except the employer. Um but then there's always the argument that oh, yeah, but if you pay people more, then the prices will go up and then it will cost us more. We won't have to pay more tax, but we'll have to pay more in, in buying all the commodities that we buy. And, you know, you don't have to look very hard at, at what's going on at the moment in the UK or the US to see that that's just, you know, the, the inflation that we're seeing is not being driven by wage increases because wages aren't going up. It's been driven by price gouging by large it's corporations. That's right. So, so there's a, I think there is a long-term propaganda scam being perpetrated on the world from, from an economic perspective in that, albeit that human labor has always been one of the more expensive inputs to, to production, human labor is also seemingly the only variable in the process when in reality, there's lots of variables in, in production, right? There's, there's, there's many, there's marketing, there's CEO pay, there's stock buybacks, there's, there's market subsidization, subsidizations, there's investor, uh, uh payments, uh, sure. dividends. There's all kinds of things happening, but somehow, uh, you know, and, and of course, they're, they they try very hard not to make a profit because who would be silly enough to pay taxes on money that they could hide elsewhere? Yeah. But so so they're not making a, a corporate profit, but everybody's getting rich inside. The company's getting rich, and and lo and behold, McDonald's is going to go broke if they're if they're if the, uh, according to the CEO, if California passes a law that 
that they have to pay their their employees more. And it's just it's so logically absurd to look at one input of production as the only uh, malleable and, and, and variable element. And, and it's, it's just the, the recurrent victimization of labor since capitalism started. And, and I guess yes. it just never ceases to amaze me that people fall for it, that people fall for the yeah. fact that, that increasing wages of impoverished people is somehow just going to drive up their prices. Well, it might. But, but but for a different reason and maybe a good one, maybe instead of government subsidies uh, covering the wages that Walmart isn't paying their workers, maybe Walmart pays them more yeah. and charges a little bit more. Yeah. But the economy is healthier because you don't have, you know, some some right now, a majority of people struggling so badly that if they have a two hundred dollar family emergency, they're going to they're they're not going to be able to pay the rent next month. Sure. Yeah. yeah. I, pe people are living, hand, you know, month to month, paycheck to paycheck. So, and, and we get, we get the same, we get the same thing when, when there's any strike action, everyone's kind of up in arms. Oh no, you know, if the train drivers are going on strike, I won't be able to get a train to work. Well, yes, that's because what they do is important. <laughs> so why don't we pay them something to reflect that then? Right. For, for, for five minutes, we got, we got a, a title without pay, which was essential worker. It's, it's, there's also yes. like, many studies that show that titles are given out to reduce compensation because you can get a sucker. If you, if you call them general manager, you can get a sucker to work for $40,000 less than if you, if you don't give them the title. Right. So, so yeah. the corporate, the corporate world has figured out a lot of ways to, to fleece labor. But, but again, yeah, th this concept that uh, keeping the people doing the hands-on human work at the bottom end and, and at the starving end of the pay scale is completely and totally absurd. And, and I, again, I would argue that it, that is not part of capitalism. That's called, that's part of predation as part yeah. of capitalism of, of using uh, certain people as the victims so that other people can win. And, and while, you know, ideally we like to think of ourselves as, as a competitive uh, global economy and capitalism is about competition. No, the, the capitalism is is about human, using humans as fuel in a in a great deal of the of the economy, and yeah. and now we have the advent of or the, the the public releases and the public uses of artificial intelligence that gives the corporations more. Uh, power if you will than than ever before what do you think heidelor i think as well with um with with the oh, income inequality is, is you know is obviously sorry my dog's been but um, with, with income inequality it's um it's it's an important thing and, and as you say that that extreme income inequality isn't really part of capitalism but it is um the, even if we address that income inequality, we, yeah, and you could do that within capitalism, and and you know if if, if we look at times past, there was much less in, income inequality in other countries. There's less in, in Sweden. There's less because you get taxed really heavily if you're a high earner. So your take-home pay is closer to um, that of the the lower-paid workers in your company. In Japan, 
culturally there's just a lower extreme between the, t- the, the, the workers at the top and, and the workers low down in the company so so there are you know there are ways of doing capitalism with uh, a smaller amount of income inequality than we're seeing in the uk and the us at the moment but i think this feeds into something um which i i talk about a bit in the book in, in a different context um but about the kind of the identity politics um sort of aspect the the, the identity politics focused left and I think the reason why it's, it's, it's a similar thing is that one of the things that people on the left need to do is call out capitalism on its hypocrisy. It, there shouldn't be cartels and monopolies. There shouldn't be huge amounts of income equality. There don't need to be those things. Those things are not even created by the free market. They're created by market manipulation by the wealthy. Um, and in the same way, uh, you know, capitalism kind of as it was shunting out feudalism it was justifying this by saying look you you guys have got social privilege because you're the aristocracy and that's not fair everyone should be equal in front of the law everyone should have an equal amount an equal role in political participation and one of the things that the left has done is call out capitalism on not delivering on those and there has been progress made in, in in some of those areas you know although it's not the case now in the uk and the us in other countries it is, and in, in our countries it has been recently a lot better than kind of Victorian times in terms of wage, you know, income inequality. Uh, lots of, there's lots of legis- legislation that's happened in terms of kind of racial and gender inequality. So those things are, we, you know, we are in a better place than we have been in the past. We're still clearly not there. There's still plenty to call up capitalism on not delivering on those things. But then that's kind of and that's where the liberal left kind of focus really but the socialist left then say well yes all of that but also there's some other stuff that we need to do which you can't do within capitalism even if you fix income inequality and if you fix racial um kind of structural racial injustice and and the gender pay gap and all that kind of thing even if you take the the kind of the, the 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 hierarchy the pyramid of kind of inequalities within capitalism and you rearrange it so that gender and race play no role in where you sit in that hierarchy of inequality there's still a hierarchy of inequality and and as the socialist left we're saying well yeah but we've got to get rid of that as well yes definitely fix that other stuff but we also need to move further on and one of those things i think with the income inequality is that we need to move on as well so that we're um we need to address wealth inequality and that's that's one of the you know that's the the big that's the bigger prize really partly it's because we have no wealth most of us we don't have any wealth we have income and our income comes in at the month and we spend it by the end of the month it's all gone and then we get some more income and then ever accrues into any wealth but the people that have already got a big stack of wealth just it just keeps accruing and accruing and, and, and accruing and, and that's you know that's the redistribution of wealth is what we need as probably even more than the redistribution of income is is the redistribution of wealth i'm just gonna let my dog for anyone listening the the groaning was the dog not uh not a human uh groaning taking a pause while steve's letting the dog out Okay, sorry, she, she's a blind dog and she just kind of stands in the middle of the floor making a noise. <laughs> no, no worries. So, so yes, that, that wealth inequality and, and one of the reasons uh, that 
I was so fascinated with how capitalism manages that that the imbalance inequality and inequality is actually getting worse with the application of, of artificial intelligence as a management system for human employees. And we call that the gig economy. And so a lot of the things we hear yeah. about are about chat GPT and interactive types of, of AI. Uh, but the real, the real menace right now, and, and the one that is actually uh, supercharged, the, the metaphorical corporate psychopath is corporate AI in the gig economy, because now that that exploitation that would happen if a if a chess computer that solved chess plays a grandmaster uh, is the same exploitation that occurs when a human uh, laborer works for AI. It it beats their pants off every single time yeah. without fail. And and then if we go back to to markets that gig app is not presenting a capitalistic or a even a fair market that that gig app controls both the supply and demand for labor at all times and the prices and the promotions to the customer and the tips everything else so what you've got is a completely and totally rigged marketplace that is being presented to labor number 1 as as income but number two, as, as income as an independent contractor, so there's no longer any employment relationship here. There's only a relationship of work produced, which may sound like a, a, some kind of a, of a potential fair trade, but when you add risk uh, and expenses to that of, of human beings doing the operational work, that transfer of, of risk, of expenses and of capital investment is all pushed from the corporate entity onto the backs of the most victimized labor historically on the planet. So, so we've got a real uh, horror with corporate AI running humans, uh, and and I call it, and it is, is it's app slavery because it actually doles out, assigns tasks. And 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 uh, generates activity in the economy in which in which workers are literally losing money or not getting uh, net income by yeah. the time they're doing the task, and they're doing that by multiple levels of deception. This is so you know it, in any contract, deception is is one way to invalidate a contract is to deceive the other party about material facts of that contract. So I'd like your take kind of on the market rigging, the, uh, the, the severance of an employee relationship into just this pure corporate predator that, that both corporate AI and, and the gig economy have, have wrought on the world. And, and just a final note, uh, our, our Goliath has 65, 65% of the uh, U.S last mile delivery space called DoorDash. And they are now through the act, through the acquisition of uh, Volt Enterprises from uh, Sweden uh, right. in 27 nations around the world wow. in what I call app colonization. So you can now have yeah. AI in San Jose, California, running uh, the workforce of a, of a company, of a dictator, 
of a nation. Uh, there really is no limit to that scalability and it's pure exploitation. So I'd love your thoughts on those things. Sure. I mean, the, you know, the, the gig economy and um, the, I guess what's come together is the gig economy and the concept of disguised employment. So that, that used to be called subcontracting here. So um, years ago, like when my dad was started work on building sites, you were self-employed. You had to, it, and it was called subcontracting. It, but basically, it was disguised employment. You worked for the same company all year um, in the same job. You got a wage packet at the end of the week. The only difference was because it, you were officially a subcontractor and therefore self-employed. You have to buy all your own tools. You have to. You don't get any sick. If you injure yourself at work, then you don't get any sick pay. You don't get any holidays that you don't pay for. All of that kind of thing. Um, you don't get any employee benefits. You don't get redundancy money if the company goes bust and you haven't got a job anymore. And at that time, we had pretty good coverage for all of those things in the UK. But you don't get it if you're if you're in disguised employment, if you're subcontracting, which is what we we now call kind of the gig economy, I guess. Um, it's still widespread and there's still that going on. I mean, my son sometimes works as a, as a tree surgeon and he's he, that's the same deal there. You buy your own chainsaw or your own safety kit or your own ropes and everything. Um, and if you hurt yourself, then you don't get any any sick pay. There's no holiday pay, you know. So you're you're kind of um, you know that that isn't a, a thing that is that that didn't happen before kind of AI. But obviously, the the advent of AI now, as you say, this just it has expanded this situation massively. And so you've got Uber drivers and multi-drop van drivers. Um, and and a host of other other um, occupations which are being controlled by these apps, and there is no you know there's there's no kind of um, there's no human element to it. There's no um, pushback to it. There's no there's no you you know you can't phone your boss up or go into the office at the end of the day and say you know you're not giving me enough time to get from drop A to drop B. Or have you noticed that diesel has gone up by you know sixty p a litre? or you know four pounds a gallon or whatever it you know whatever it is have you have, all of these things are making it i'm now working till 10 o'clock at night instead of six o'clock at night and i by the time i've put petrol in the van and you know paid my road tax i'm actually losing i'm paying you to come to work now because i know and all my money is coming from benefit so there's no i mean the ai is very good at responding to market forces but one of the one force it's not going to respond to is employee dissatisfaction um i guess I mean, does the app, if, if, if loads of people leave and no, people, no new people join, does the app then start putting wages up, put prices up for deliveries? If, That's uh, if the it's problem. getting harder to, to get doesn't It doesn't there's sound such, likely to me. <laughs> there's such a surplus of, of labor available yeah. that nothing that the workforce does in any way, shape or form impacts uh, the, the gig apps because they've, they've got... Yeah all of the labor they need and more and so they've the the wages have been constantly driven down while the expenses have gone up and you know and inflation of course hits that individual worker both as a household and mm -hmm. as a, an individual and Unlike the construction uh, examples that you used or the many contractors that have gigs today, and, and gig just means you get paid by the job, right? That's yeah. you, you can be any profession and 
and do a gig, there's writing gigs, and you can write an article and get paid for that writing gig. The thing that's different about those is, is those are not in an artificial game world in which you're being materially deceived. So, so what happens in a gig app is that information that is fully available by the uh, perpetrating gig app cartel company is not presented as the offer to the worker. Some type of gamed, gamified, gamblified version of that is presented as a quote offer and based upon garbage unsolvable information there's too many variables to solve whether right. you're going to make money or lose money on this or whether yeah. you're going to get surprised by an re intermittent reinforcement at the end of it of this task or not that there's no way to sign a valid contract because if if somebody came to uh to your son as a tree surgeon and said you know i i want you to uh to to do this job and he gave them a quote and said great it's in glastonbury he would he would say that's no wait a minute yeah. i did not sign a contract to do tree surgery in glastonbury yeah. i signed a contract to do tree surgery well this is the equivalent of what what gig app companies do as a standard of practice they don't tell uber and lyft drivers where exactly they're going or the exact locations because in the actual free market if they told these drivers where they were going and they knew they had to cross the bridge over into Manhattan and right. then deadhead back, they wouldn't take the job. So yeah. deception becomes part of the the business model. And and I would argue there's no way you can call somebody an, indiv an independent contractor if they're in a game world, because in a game world, nothing is independent. This is this is a rigged game. These the, the map is already drawn. No matter what yeah. a human being does, there's a an, a world-class AI behind DoorDash that takes every single move every human could make and simultaneously can can predict the 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 necessary outcomes that are next and how to manipulate that person and how to make how to gaslight that person, make them desperate, make mm -hmm. them uh, take losses on tasks because they've gaslighted them into into a crisis so these are these are mental abuse these are financial right. abuse they're fraud um, and and so the scary thing as you look at 27 different countries is that this is a any any place or organization where you can put a smartphone in somebody's hand and task them via this AI could be managed by the AI. So again, you could have a ruthless dictator managing anybody doing anything versus with AI. And, and of course, when you talk about 27 nations, somebody's getting paid off in each one to let the, let the vampire yeah. in the house. Cause this is a vampire in the house. You're when you let the vampire in the house, it's going to drink your blood. It's going to yeah. do all kinds of stuff and it won't leave. So, so multiple different countries are being greased to let this vampire in the house and, and AI, at least in the United States, is becoming the end of employment. Everything that we talk yeah. about when we talk about layoffs and whatever else, they say, well, they'll become gig workers. Well, what is a gig worker? A gig worker is somebody who pays all their own expenses, has no benefits, no job security, no relationship or commonality with the corporation at all. So if that corporation 
sees its mandate as, as to maximize revenue for shareholders, and you're not even an employer, uh, an employee anymore, we now have opposite interest. My job is to fleece you as an independent contractor to the greatest extent possible. And with AI, well, I can fleece your pants off, man. Doesn't matter yeah. who you are, because I'm not giving you a solvable equation to agree to. I mean, from an economic perspective, um, how insane is that? Yeah. Yes. And it, it's, it's it, you know, it's, I think it's illustrative of the fact that we can't, you know, this is, this is how capitalism deals with AI. AI could be and should be just a gift to humanity. We should be, you think of all the things we could do if, if the people, if, if, people with the resources to set up AI projects were focused on what what good can we do in the world? <laughs> you know, how can we make the, the lives of people whose lives are most shit, how can we make their lives a bit less shit? How can we make things better for people that need things to be made better for them? What, what can we do to make things run more smoothly and more efficiently? Instead of how can we make Jeff Bezos have more yachts? That's that you know. That's what the the, the they're tasked with at the moment, and it, and I think and I say in the book I think you know and, it, and you know not just with AI but the whole history of automation capitalism does this and, and the the thing is people whose lives are blighted by drudgery and toil under capitalism are, are learn to fear the invention of any machine that will mean there will be less drudgery and toil because it's going to mean that they've got no job and actually. If there's stuff that needs doing that's quite unpleasant to do and we can invent a machine to do it, it means we don't have to do it. This should be a good thing for humanity. It means there's a, a terrible job that is unpleasant and now we don't have to do it, but it still gets done because we've invented a machine that does it. But under capitalism, that isn't what works. It's half the people get thrown onto the dole and the other half still working their fingers to the bone and now having to pay extra tax because there's, there's people on the dole that need, need some money to, to, to live on. And... I think you know the, the the there is vast potential for all kinds of automation and mechanization and AI. I think it, it, you know it's got such potential for um, you know beneficial uses, but not under capitalism. That's that's part of the, the whole thing about capitalism. It is incapable of putting th stuff like that to to good use. It, it, it's always going to going to end up being used in the way that you've just described. Yeah, that's that's certainly my argument uh, in in the book is is essentially kill it with fire uh, because the the extent to which the gig economy exploits humanity, not just labor, because we're talking about the exploitation of merchants and restaurants, we're talking about the exploitation of a, by AI of consumers, dynamic pricing. I'm going to give you whatever pricing I think you need by what yeah. I present you. At this time, it's it's anything and, and consumers don't know this yet. Workers don't know this yet. And, and they're in denial. They think when they're logging on, they're getting a market. No, they're, they're logging on to a game world in which everything they do is behaviorally controlled to the nth degree by the application that is that is serving them this information. They're not getting market information. They're being served specific information to change, adapt their behavior while they're doing it to addict them, to habituate them. I mean, these are the 
These are the terms that are used by the data scientists, habituation, exploitation. Exploitation, funny enough, is actually the, the data science term for, for what AI does with the data. <laughs> it, it exploits the data. So how ironic is that, that the corporate world figured out the first way to really make money on AI is not tell human beings they're being exploited by AI and just trust this gig economy out there in the pandemic. And they hit the they hit the lottery from an economic yeah. perspective. They hit the they hit a time in the market where all of a sudden, unlike all of history before, when in the United States, 85% of, of retailers and 99 or sorry, 99% of retailers and 85% of restaurants had no delivery options prior to the pandemic. And now wow. you get through the crisis and and the and they're all signed up with with contracts that are fleecing their pants off between 15 and 30 percent and convinced that if they if they don't get into the home delivery business, they're 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 not going to survive when the opposite is the case. Uh, the independent retailers are going out of business because you can't make any profit when a non innovative non entity simply simply just parasit parasitically uh, feeds off every single uh, revenue dollar that you pump through them. And, you know, I mean, DoorDash will supplant a restaurant's own site with its uh, offer on Google. So, you know, if you, if you want a hamburger at, 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 at a hamburger joint, you might actually the or get the order screen for uh, DoorDash before you even get the one for the direct uh, hamburger sure. joint. Yeah. So it's, it's the same in the hotel industry. Level. I've worked in that for a bit, and, and uh, it's the same in the hotel industry. That that, that um, if you search for a hotel, um, you, you know, you used to put in the name of a town and a hotel, and you would get up a load of websites of those hotels right. in that town. But now you get Google Hotels, Bookings.com, Hotels.com, lots of other kind of aggregators. That's right. You're never you're never going to see the Hilton site. Yeah, you're yeah. you're never even going to yeah. get. You're never even going to see Hilton.com. And and of course they make yeah. all different kind of collusive agreements that that they'll give any sure. given site preferred pricing at some different times. So yeah, yeah, this is. I think Google is, hotels demand that that they are the cheapest place you can you can book a room at any given hotel that's on their scheme. And if you're not on them, you're not coming up on the first result on Google. And if you are on them, you have to sell your rooms through them cheaper than you would sell them on your own site. Or, that's, or at least no more expensive than they would be, but you're giving Google a, a cut every time. So Google that's, are just that's the benefit the of because of the their benefit of position. subsidized markets and and monopolization, right? Is that that it's it's anti market, uh, you yeah. Know, but with DoorDash working to control the global supply of of, of AI for uh, using app slaves and and applying gig app technology. Uh, they're making sure that everything that happens in the market is strictly to their advantage and they're colluding with their with other retailers such that they're helping pick the winners right McDonald's is going to win because they're getting preferred pricing over the your local restaurant yeah uh, pet PetSmart's going to win because they're getting preferred pricing over your local pet store so there will be no more local pet store. There will be yeah. no more, and and we're seeing that already. So so one of the 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 flip side of this, which I find very compelling, 
and and then I think we're getting we're going to wrap up so we don't go too much over an hour here. Uh, is that in destroying the relationship with labor? That that's a two sided coin because labor is now not going into an office. They have no relationship with the boss. They don't feel like they need to give anybody two weeks notice. They have no attachment to anything. So just like they can be severed without cause. Labor can disappear without cause, which means, unlike any time before in humanity, gig economy labor is too transient and and too disempowered to ever be able to organize. They're they're disaggregated by design, right? They're 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 they yeah. are ruthlessly disaggregated from everything so that they can't ever coalesce. But but. The thing that every human has is is we have that you said it in a in a broadcast I watched we own a hundred percent of our labor and that is what we humans that's just a quote I wrote down from you last night yeah we humans do have an advantage is that we own a hundred percent of our labor and we can turn gig apps off we can just say this is a fraudulent agreement I'm being gamed and I'm not a gam I'm not here to gamble I'm here to work so I'm yeah. turning off your gambling game. And ultimately, that is, I believe, the the way that it will go and the way that it has to go, because there's too many government officials paid off. There's too many corporations paying governments uh, to, to push this gig economy uh, and app slavery model forward into many different nations. It's going to take the people coming together with collective individual action, because we, you talked about yeah. the... the the tough part of, of coalescing some type of a labor or left or any type of a people's movement is very, very difficult. But this is, again, very different because each of us with AI has 100 percent of our labor to make a decision from. And it's going to take a whole bunch of people being the leader personally, turning off AI, refusing to work for gamified, gamblified AI when they're being deceived and gaslighted and manipulated and enslaved and, and refuse to play that game. That, that was no. never, that has never been such a digital binary, easy thing to do to sever yourself from employment. And, and that's a people's power, I would argue. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, I mean, the, the, the AI is obviously tuned to get the best deal for the company and the worst deal for the, for the worker, but there is a limit to how far to what people will work for, isn't there? You know, however desperate you are, you're not going to go and work for less than you would get on welfare. You'll you just go actually, on welfare. <laughs> actually, they, they, they do. You hear if you watch the, a lot of these folks broadcast their their work um, yeah. as, a, as another industry off the industry. They become YouTube broadcasters of right. this stuff. And, and you will absolutely watch veterans and rookies alike rationalize working for nothing because or rationalize working for a dollar because it's more than zero rationalize no. that that some vague promise in the game that will never be realized you know they're going to get rewards in game world heaven if they yeah. do this economically losing work and that's that's the power of ai is it's yeah. not just it's not just minimizing the pay of the app slave it's beating their pants off it's enslaving them it's yeah. they're losing money and if that, they're like me or a lot of other people 
This is one of the most dangerous activities in the United States, work activities. One out of every 10 Amazon drivers in the United States in 2021 was injured on the job. I'm sorry, one out of every five. So, right. so that's that's 20% of Amazon drivers were injured on the job. So now you have all these fleeced independent contractors. What are they doing? They're wrecking their cars. They're, they're having accidents. They're injuring themselves. Those externalities go right back on the public, right back on the emergency rooms, right back on the insurance companies who then refuse to do the refuse to even pay the claims because this person was using their their vehicle for work. It's such a multi-layered scam on the most vulnerable workers. Uh, it's it's really in, in in my career in business the most hideous thing I've ever seen beyond my imagination of the ways that you could exploit humans. And, and that's, you know, that that's my purpose in the full dash closure is really to focus on this gig economy and make humans informed consumers of AI. Because we're not going to make AI disappear. All AI is not inherently evil, would be my argument. Why was it, why was it invented? What is it doing? Who is it helping? What purpose is it serving? If, if it's if its sole purpose is, is to exploit humans on behalf of corporations. Boy, I'm going to make I'm going to make a pretty vociferous argument that that's that's really evil and that that yep. should not continue. And again, right now, the biggest problem is that we've got an entire world of uninformed consumers getting their pants beat off. Yeah, I just had a look, actually. Uh, I had to I couldn't remember the name of it, so I just had to look it up. Do you know the film? Sorry, we missed you. It's a, it's a film by name. Ken Loach, who's a very left wing director. He did a film called I Daniel Blake recently. He's been he's been around for years making good kind of solidly left wing films. It's called Sorry um, I Missed You. Yes, he he made it in 2019. And sorry, it's called Sorry We Missed You. Um, and it's about I don't know if it is actually Amazon are named, but it's a company that are clearly supposed to be Amazon or someone like them. And the guy is on this gig economy van driving job and it's about it it does have the ai he's got his little machine that's a handheld thing that's telling him where the next job is and what he's got to do it's kind of old enough because it's, it's it's four years old now and so that probably means it was made six years ago that it's less about how ai is controlling him but more about the very fine margins there's i think that you know he gets an incident where he stops the van he takes something into an office when he comes out somebody's stolen something else out the back of the exactly. van. exactly Another day, somebody knocks his wing mirror off or something. And these, this has now meant that he's getting no money. This because he's got to pay for the thing that was stolen. He's got to pay for the wing mirror. He's getting no money this month. Now he can't pay his rent. You know, And it's this yeah. kind of snowball effect. It's such fine margins between you can just about survive in that job. But one thing goes wrong, you're in trouble. And two things go wrong kind of within a week. And you just start in this downward spiral. Get stop getting, you know, obligations stop getting met. You get into debt, and and then you start. You know, you're chasing your tail, and it all kind of gets worse. And there's kind of family disintegration and everything. So it, right. it's a, it's a it's a film that's probably worth watching. Just you know, in terms of that kind of Amazon driver gig economy um, idea. And, and Ken Loach is a great director. His films are usually pretty good. Yeah, it, and that's the. That, that's I think where people in the in the community, consumers, and even a lot of of deceived gig economy workers get confused is that the, these gig apps are not dispatching uh, services. These are not 
These are not market-based dispatching services like you would have thought of uh, on on an old show where they're showing a taxi stand and the the boss or the whoever. This is not just a more advanced version of that. This is this is human exploitation at a psychological, physical, financial, uh, and mental health even level. And and you know the corporations and businesses are based upon a risk reward ratio, right? So so in theory, we're supposed to if we take a really high risk, we're going to want a, a better reward at the end because yeah, we might not meet it. Or if we take a really low risk, we're we're going to accept a really low reward because we're going to expect that reward. Well, what did the corporations figure out how to do? They transferred the considerable accident risk. They can so the the insurance risk. They transferred the inflation risk. So now inflation doesn't hurt them because they're not making capital investments. It's now the the fleeced employee that's making the capital investments in the car, the yeah. the uh, and and the the depreciation and the and the maintenance, uh, gas prices maintenance costs, uh, tires, insurance, everything, every single risk, including just time and operational risk. If you get stuck for a half hour at a restaurant waiting, that's a half hour. You're not making any money. So, so this, this is such a phenomenal, uh, scam upon the workers of the world. Cause it's not only dishonest in terms of, of fake, contracts falsely falsely uh offered contracts but it's it's taken all of the risks that a corporation was built to bear i think that's why corporations were created was to take the risk from individual wealthy people and put it into a pool so that those individual wealthy people didn't lose money if if bad shit happens and you can go to jail when bad shit happens and all that well they've just taken the whole thing put it on workers so now what is this corporation what is DoorDash with corporate AI? Because you can't talk to them. There's no cut. Co- if you if you call customer service as a customer or as a as an employee, you're going to talk to a third party contractor. They don't know you. Yeah. They've never met you. They don't know your name. You're not a human being. You're just a digital widget. And, and so it's yeah. it's really quite an incredible violation of human rights at, at every level. Uh, what do you see in the gig economy in in the UK? And I'm going to give you the last word after after that. Or you're in the in the areas you travel. What do you see for the gig economy, and what impacts are you seeing on business? Um, I th- I, yeah, I think it's 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 mu- it's less prevalent here than it is in the US. Um, part of that is that we still, despite another whatever it is, 13 years now of Tory government, we still have some some labour laws in place um, and we still have some some um we still have benefits and things that, that are in place so so you can get which you know which are under attack constantly under attack and being shaved off and i'm not trying not at all going to imply that the amount you get if you're on in work benefits in the uk is a kind of a livable amount but they they are there and so there's a minimum wage which is nine quid an hour and there's there's then um there, there are in work benefits that you can claim if you know if you've got kids or, or whatever that can contribute towards feeding your family and paying your rent so th- while those are not great they i think people are less vulnerable here than they are in the us where many of those things aren't in place the problem with the hourly rate is 
that only counts if I'm offering you an, an hourly paid job with the gig economy. Of course, you're, you're now self-employed. It's your problem if you don't make any money. You can't come to me at the end of the day and say, I've worked eight hours and I've only made five quid. I need I need another, you know, I need another 75 quid off you to, to get me up to the minimum wage. That doesn't happen. You can, to some extent, go to the benefits system and say, actually, I'm not getting enough to live on. I need some more. But that is slow and cumbersome and difficult. And even if you get the best result out of it, you're still very poor. But but you're perhaps not as destitute as you might be in the US if you're if you're kind of at, completely at the mercy of the gig economy. Um, I think we've also um, because we've had Brexit, we've got a labour shortage. So um, people aren't taking the worst jobs because you know there are better jobs around because we, we do have a labor shortage here so many um eu citizens went home went back to the eu um not not even so much brexit happened the, the referendum happened and people knew that that there were there were going to be changes and some people left then but then it took five years six years whatever it is now of negotiating to get what the actual deal was the actual deal that's come out of it is even worse than anybody expected. So, so even more people have gone home. But also, I think there's been a kind of a sea change in attitudes. There are things that, you know, that for, for, for me, for I was born in the middle of the 60s. And for most of my kind of adult life, of course, there's been racism and xenophobia around. But you kind of got the impression it was gradually getting less and less. It was, it was diminishing. Even if people thought it, they didn't say it. If they said it, they said it quietly under their breath. And then suddenly after the referendum, just it was like, well, everyone's got license to just be an arsehole. Man. And, and many people just took that offer and, and did that. And I think a, a lot of a lot of people that were here working in the kind of jobs that, that now don't, don't get filled. Um, just thought, I just don't, you know, I don't feel welcome here. I don't feel like I'm wanted it. I'm, I'm going, you know, and, and so it's kind of quite an exodus of, of people and um, as a result of that we've got labour shortages and so it's quite hard for those kind of AI gig economy levels of exploitation to take hold they will do no doubt uh, at some point but but probably you know there there's there there are particular circumstances in the UK that are just holding those back for the time being give it another five years and you know it, it will probably be a very very similar story here to, to what's happening in the US and obviously in plenty of other countries as well. And, and I would say further that, that politicians either don't understand or don't want to understand how corporate eye actually works because in an artificial market, in a gamblified, gamified market, you can't legislate because there are no rules. Anything, you know, sure. One thing that does happen occasionally here in the U.S. is is a big city here and there, Seattle or the state of California or some locality will challenge this from a local perspective. And and the companies, the gig economy cartel will go in there and spend hundreds of millions of dollars uh, shaping the uh, the outcome to what they want it to be. Uh, which, of course, is, is, again, always in their favor. You know, there's there's a couple. I think Seattle is known for a fact where they kind of actually set up a minimum wage system. California passed yeah. a referendum that was sponsored by the, the gig economy companies where they set up kind of a, a minimum pay system. But those are 
those are a fraction of the markets. And of course, by fighting every one of those tooth and nail, DoorDash and the other gig economy cartels make sure that nobody does that on a national level. Nobody does that on a global level. So the, the level of exploitation of the workers is, is simply not even on the map for politicians. Yeah. They, they don't understand that the AI is not a dispatching system. It's a rigged, it's a, it's micro rigged yeah. markets for human exploitation. And again, with those that do understand are, are probably making money off it. So um, I think one of, well, one of the differences that we in the UK, we forget with the US is, is that, you, that obviously we know you don't have, you don't have an NHS and, and we know that's where we're heading um, inexorably it seems. But um, what I think we tend to forget about when we're talking about employment issues in the US is that how many, for, for, for the number of people where their healthcare is, is tied to their employment. And then when you end up in a gig economy job, then you, you get no, there's no healthcare comes with that. Because, right. And you know, so, you're, so that now was, you're earning less and you've got to pay for your own health insurance out of it. Well, so th that was a stepwise process too, because most lower income workers have been steadily losing their health insurance and access to health insurance and being on right. uh, part of a national marketplace that's income dependent. It, there's, there's been a whole lot of, of changes in that space too. But but yes, in, in the United States, the workers are really flying without a net and, and AI not only uh, exploits the workforce, it can also terminate somebody's uh, access to the app and, and right. uh, income opportunity with any or no cause, with, with no, uh, no protections and no recourse whatsoever so yeah. you know your people in the united states that are working in the gig economy are as close to without a net as any worker has ever been and and again right. I, i'm going to argue that that here it's it's pure enslavement it is deception to the point of economic loss uh, and you know there's again this was created so that minimum wage no longer applies there is no minimum wage in the gig economy you're yeah. paid by the hour for I mean, a minute at a time, right? The situation in the US is, is is pretty poor, even if you're employed, though, isn't it? The, the, the minimum wage is kind of... How, the, minimum the, minimum wage, wage? the minimum wage also varies by, by states and localities. Right. There are big cities that have a minimum wage. The state of Oregon has a minimum wage. Right. There's a federal, the federal minimum wage. Again, so the matrix, again, is, is such that any given uh, base of of disempowered and and exploited workers can't even can't even coalesce because there's no mechanism for them to do so and and the the unionization efforts have have dropped from you know well-paid middle class mm -hmm. auto workers and industrial workers to now it's Starbucks employees and Amazon warehouse workers yeah. that are attempting yeah. to unionize and they're going against you know trillion dollar multinational companies yeah. that don't want it to happen. So you can guess how fast that's going. So yeah, it's yeah. been a, a complete, a complete uh, destruction of, of the working class. And, and actually I, I absolutely make the, the argument that this is, this is a new lower caste that, that gig economy workers are looked at as a lower social caste. It's okay that they don't make minimum wage. It's okay that all the risk is on them. It's okay that they're suffering and they're they're homeless yeah. and and so that to 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 your point about 
well, it's better than nothing. Uh, it has to be enough to keep going. Well, now DoorDash is, is advertising to immigrants and, and young people of color to do this job via bicycle and via scooter because, right. you know, the people that have been doing it with their automobile, it's no longer, no longer even economically viable. So you yeah. just see the standards and you can imagine what they do in India or you can imagine what they're doing in in some country that doesn't that that already has lower standards for labor pay this is yeah this is just yeah. a, a exploitation tool without limits sure so steve any i want to thank you give you a chance to um talk about uh, your book how people can get your book where people can find you if you want them to find you on social media okay. and give us a rundown of what you're doing Okay, so I am also the book. I've got a copy here. Like, I never do that thing where it's all on the bookshelves behind me, but that's <laughs> like right. Um, and it's available kind of everywhere. I normally recommend people to go to um, bookshop.org um, because they support local bookshops. So you can go and buy it from there and you can nominate a local bookshop that gets a little, I'll, I'll little put that money link for in. it. But better than buying it from Amazon. And there's a UK version of that. And in the UK, there's also a company called Hive.co.uk that, that do the same thing. You nominate a local bookshop and they get some of the cash. Okay, if so you know, failing that, Waterstones, Blackwells or someone, last resort, it is at Amazon. You know, and, and you know, to be fair, it's probably cheaper at Amazon and free delivery and stuff. So if people are broke, I'm, I certainly wouldn't criticise anyone for taking the cheapest option of, of, of any particular thing they want to buy. Um, I think um, it's yeah, it's it, it's a good book. I mean, you know, it's had good reviews and things. It's you know, I, of course, I'm going to say it's a good book. So I wrote it. Um, although when I read it, I always think, oh, no, I should have put that a bit earlier and stuff. But uh, yeah, um, Jacobin Magazine had it in their their best books we've read in 2022. Um, it was yeah, it, it's it's had some fairly good reviews. So I. Um, what can I say about it? It's, I think, one thing I guess that people have said that, that has kind of been quite complimentary is, has been that if you want to find some really good arguments for taking apart right-wingers' positions, then then there, there are lots of them in there, lots of kind of original and and also well-worn arguments for, you know, when you, when you come across that guy saying, no, capitalism is great, we must keep it forever, or, you know, the free market is the only way, or... Why didn't the Soviet Union work? If blah blah blah. So yeah, if you if you have to if you have to put up with those people in your life, then this book will give you some ammunition to to uh, throw at them. Yeah, I really I really enjoyed the style. My comment to a number of people has been that it I like the way that you take people through a heuristic process of of our current state, our history. And then moving forward, how it fits together and what can be done. I I, I really think that that's yeah. That's the type of writing that people need today is is not just a bunch of statements, but a case of why those statements can be seen as as true and credible, the sources that they came from and and what we might be able to do about it. So I very much appreciated um, your your work on that. And it's been great talking with you uh, for everybody yeah, on the podcast. If you notice the uh, disappearance of Hyler, she had. Uh, technical programs or technical problems. I apologize. Uh, so she disappeared on us. But thank you again, Steve. I know it's getting late. 
uh, over there in the UK. And uh, great talking with you. And I hope we can do it again sometime. Sure. Yeah, I'd love to. Thank you, everybody. So this has been episode number 12 of the Full Dash Closure audiobook and podcast. I'm Jeff Thomas Black. That's Steve Paxton right there. He wrote a really interesting book called How Capitalism Ends. And thanks for joining us.